Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. So, today is the Bernie Policy Palooza. Um, just taking stock of the latest uh, latest in, in po- big policies coming from the Sanders campaign. We should probably do one of these for Warren, too, at some point. But I think that yep. uh, uh, this is a good, just a bunch of stuff coming out from them recently. And, uh, well, and in part, in part, because I think Warren has been getting legitimately great press for pumping out a bunch of great policies. Um, but I think it might have been less noticed that recently Bernie's campaign is putting out quite a few as well. Yeah, and his are in some interesting areas, you know, that are a little bit under, I would say, under noticed or uh, some neglected stuff that hasn't hasn't been uh, gotten a lot of attention. Um. Maybe the place to start is the the usury cap, if that's how you pronounce that, um, which would which would say we give a, a, a percentage limit on consumer credit products of fifteen percent interest. That's as much as you're allowed to charge. Um, which, you know, by the way, is still pretty. That's a considerable. Interest percentage, you know, the uh, I think right. the federal funds rate is up to like like two percent or something like that. Um, you know, you get a home mortgage; it's and it's usually a few points higher than that, five six percent, something like that. But if, but if you think of payday lenders or loan sharks, uh, I mean, the the percentage can be outrageous, or even some credit many credit cards can be just outrageously high, right? Yeah, credit cards. You know, I think for for your average person with good credit, it's usually about fourteen percent, fifteen percent. But if you get a, you know, if you have bad credit, it's easily twenty two percent, twenty six percent, and maybe come down a little bit. But I remember. Um, Especially before the financial crisis, I think I had a credit card with twenty seven percent APR. And yeah, as you say, payday lending products. You know, this will be like it's typically like ten percent over like a week or two weeks. You know, so yes, you get a paycheck yes. of five hundred dollars. Well, you got to pay five hundred fifty dollars in two weeks. But if you work it out, um. You know the act, the annual percentage rate is in the hundreds of percent. You know the yes, exactly. Um, well, you know what I love most about how capitalism works, Ryan. It's that the people that have the least get the worst um, rates, and they get the the harshest, most challenging um, obstacles, and that just makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, what you want to do is you want to take the poorest people that have the hardest time to get credit, and uh, you know make them have to be squeezed all the more, which proportionally harms them um, exponentially more uh, with things like payday lending. So, so um, you know, th- that's the way you want to do it. You want to make uh, inversely, the richer you are, the, the, the fewer obstacles you have, and the more power to dominate people you have. And then the worse off you are, the um, more you're screwed and squeezed by the system. That, that seems logical to me. Yeah. And, you know, so payday lending would be basically driven out of business, I think. Um, I don't know if you could make a make a profit on doing payday loans for you know 15% whatever that would work out to be uh it doesn't seem so Do you want to explain to people how payday loans work? Yeah, well I mean as I said, you know, you get your paycheck and um or you you need your your you uh, need a loan to get you to your paycheck and so you go to the payday loan shop and they and they advance you 
the money against your paycheck. Yeah, against your paycheck, yeah. and then the charge is on top of that. So, it, yeah, it's, it's a you know typically ten fifteen percent over a very very short period, and so you got to pay them back. You know, fifteen percent interest over over a course of just a few uh, days or weeks, and yeah, fifteen percent. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that these institutions could survive. Um, only you know by cutting their their revenue stream by like ninety five percent or something, maybe not. Um, but uh, there's there's some literature you know suggesting that like under certain circumstances, like when a you know, hurricane strikes and people have a lot of unexpected expenses, payday loans can be like a okay bridge. Um, but there's also research suggesting that when, when payday, uh, payday loans move into an area, the, the overall financial security of the population goes down. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a kind of thing where it's like, whatever is enabling this businesses to survive, it's got to be stopped. And so if the usury cap, uh, drives them out of business and you have to do something to compensate so that poor people, you know, still right. can feed themselves. What in other fine. words, if the, if you think of the loan sharks and the payday lenders as basically the mafia, uh, people forget the mafia actually serve a purpose. Like they, they they just like gangs serve a purpose. Gangs and the mafia have the role of filling the gap when institutional failure doesn't provide for people's basic economic or other, other forms of security. Right. So now of course there's, there's threat of violence, which, you know, um, debt can be a form of a threat of violence as well. But, um, if you remove the mafia, but you still have the problems in the neighborhood that the mafia was protecting you from, um, well then you're, you're still screwed. Right. But it's a lose, lose situation because, we want to get rid of the, the the enforced violence that is pretending to be there for your benefit. Yeah. And a maybe more interesting question has to do with credit cards. As we said, some of these cards are they have a higher APR than 15% and, you know, the the theory suggests that if you think, you know, in just sort of classic e- economist terms, this should reduce the availability of consumer credit. It'd be harder to get credit cards. Um, but one thing uh, that kind of goes missing from the discussion about credit cards specifically is the incredible profit margins on on credit cards. So I looked up mm-hmm. Visa, the profits of Visa on a, on a, a quarterly basis uh, have gone up from. Uh, four point two billion in two thousand seven to uh sorry quarterly basis from one point one point five billion up to five point five billion in the last quarter in two uh, twenty nineteen the most recent one and meanwhile the the margin the profit rate has increased uh so from mm-hmm. two th- and <clears throat> June two thousand seven it was Twenty three point seven percent in March twenty nineteen for the, for the, the again the last quarter fifty four point one nine percent. So these these companies are just raking it in and um, just bilk, bilking people. Yeah, yeah, and so people suggest as like, well, we're, you know, maybe the rewards 
programs get somewhat less generous. That may be true, but there the fact is there's just an incredible amount of of cream, you might say, in this in this market. And, you know, uh <laughs> if if uh Visa and MasterCard had to make do with only twenty three percent profit for basically just pushing money around which is very easy to do um and this is your typical like liberal bourgeois response like what you're gonna save millions of people from devastation and and indentured servitude but you'll possibly harm my like travel like my frequent flyer miles program might be different (laughs) yeah and i mean i i these those those frequent flyer programs they they do come at the expense of these interchange fees you know and i think that they probably shouldn't exist you know that that it just it's just higher prices throughout the entire economy and then they right. they buy off the their customers with these rewards programs but more importantly they're just making tons and tons of money and um one of the uh, the 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 countering moves that that Sanders and AOC, who who uh, co-sponsored this this bill, this proposal is is to uh, put out postal banking, allow the post office to offer banking services, which it actually has done in the past, and it may even be legal to do it under existing law right now. Um, and that would be just like, you know, you basically have a a, a vanilla like free checking or like very cheap checking and a, a very, you know, just bare bones credit card and debit card that you could get that anybody could get, you know, and it's the kind of thing where like it, it wouldn't allow you to get into, it wouldn't do the thing where like uh, you overdraft your account and they're charging you a $30 fee every time. Um, it just, it'd just be like very straightforward banking and so that anybody could get. And that might, um, uh, allow this this uh, you know the the unbanked population, so to speak, to uh, to get access to basic financial services that would uh, somewhat mitigate you know the loss of of this you know like like a, a big business in slums is just check cashing services. There's a lot of places to do that, and the percentage yep. on those yep. things is often like nine percent or something. You know, a huge portion of your paycheck, and if you if you just had that real simple thing, you know, I mean, you 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 shouldn't need these freaking ridiculous um, uh, loan products to to for allow people to to you know make uh, get from one paycheck to the next. And this may While be we're at it. Can we can can we say that overdraft fees and how they're used should be criminal? It's just like. I'm, I'm, I, yes, you have no money. I'm going to punish you for it and make you go into debt because you have no money in your bank account. And there have been lawsuits because that's not that's legal. It's not even bad enough to just do that. But they they abuse that and and charge people overdraft when they shouldn't. And they've been Bank of America, for example, was sued for tons and tons of money for fraudulently bilking people that are that have no money, right? Yeah, the I think the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, has somewhat cracked down on this, though it's probably been relaxed under Mick Mulvaney. Um, but yeah, so, back in the day, they would do shit like rearrange your transaction order so that you yes, dipped into which the came in first, yep. red temporarily, and then they would ding you for a whole bunch of fees. Um, yep. 
And yeah, that's I yeah. Mean, then everything that would come in would be like, oh, there's three thirty-six dollar fees. Boom, boom, boom. Yep, yep. You know? <laughs> Suddenly, your whole paycheck's gone in a matter of minutes. Uh, so yeah, I think this it's on balance a great proposal, you know. And I mean, you know, the the background can is this. Go ahead. I was gonna say, is the strongest objection to it the frequent flyer mile objection, or or is there other um, objections that you've heard? I don't think. I mean the. the I don't think there's any real strong objections to it, you know, and insofar like people actually do need payday loans, uh, what they really need is higher wages. That's yes. the problem. And that we, sh- you know, this, the, the the middle class people don't go to payday loan shops almost never because they have enough liquid, they have enough cash flow right, to cover right. their daily expenses yep. and a little cushion. That's all you need. You need to boost these. Higher wages and combined with more free services or subsidized services. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, get, you know, and and provide some competition for these fucking credit card companies. You know, Visa and MasterCard are like 80% of the market. And um wow. you know, this is why the the profit margins are so big. Um and I think, you know, blunt force mechanisms to provide some competition and just just force those profits down, it's got to be a good thing. So you think postal banking is on offer from Bernie as well? Or, oh yeah, or? yeah, he does support it. Yeah, he supports. Okay. Um, yeah, making another thing you could do uh, as Matt Brunick proposes is you could just um, buy a bank. Like Ally Bank was briefly nationalized by the government and then sold, but you could just have a government bank. You just buy one and then not run it. It's like a public option. Yeah, almost. and then you, you know, and then you <laughs> yeah. could throw the ATMs in the. Uh, you know, uh, post post offices and so on. You know, I think that would be more or less equivalent way of doing the same thing. And it's all online, so the overhead is low. Um, and so, anyway, yeah, I think it's a great idea. Let's do it. All right. So we've got one policy, two thumbs up. Um, what should we hit next? I think the the next one, which came out even more recently, is school desegregation. Bernie's got a big plan out to to cut. Uh, um, it's it's sort of education reform, but focused especially on desegregation. And uh, there's a whole bunch of. We'll link all this stuff because it's a pretty big proposal. He calls it the Thurgood yeah, a, Marshall. A lot going on. Yeah. Thurgood Marshall Plan for Public Education. And Very clever. Um, he wants to uh, end the the ban on on uh, busing to achieve integration. And th- this maybe requires a little bit of explanation because the the big when Biden was do was rolling back. Uh, desegregation efforts in the 70s, the big meme from people like uh, uh, Strom Thurmond and George Wallace was forced busing, right? So is the the, the creating a, a framework in which uh, the, the imagined um, prior status quo was, oh, everyone's going to their neighborhood school and... Uh, these federal bureaucrats are reaching in and they're forcing white families to bus their children to black schools. That's like that. That's what that's intended to suggest. But that frame is complete horseshit. Um, right. Busing. I mean, busing is just the practice of using a bus to send your child to school. I rode a bus when I was in 
you know, I'm, I imagine you probably did. Most people listening to this mm-hmm. probably did, you know, gone on the bus at one point or another. And uh, it, before uh, Brown versus Board of Education and all the civil rights, uh, civil rights legislation, busing was a key part of how segregation was enforced. The very mm-hmm. plaintiff in Brown versus Board of Education was bused to a black school, which was like 20 miles away from her house, and refused to allow to go to a white school, which was like four blocks away. So right. the, the, the stuff about busing is just to say that, like, can, can we use... Uh, de- Public transit? Can we use desegregation uh, criteria to select our student population? Who gets to go to what school? And that's banned as a result of shit that Biden passed back in the 70s with Strom Thurmond and James Eastland and other, you know, KKK adjacent people. Um, so, so specifically, what, what does that mean in terms of uh, what would be allowed that's no long, that, w- that is not currently allowed in terms of, okay, you're, you're a family that lives in a certain area and you're supposed to go to this school, but you actually want to go to that school. What, 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 how would that play out, that change? So the, the, um, currently you can't, uh, use, um, you can't use federal dollars to, uh, to, you know, there's like tons of education grants that are coming out of the department of education all the time. And you can't use any of that, uh, money that's earmarked for transportation to integrate your school districts. And so, what this would allow is, is is for school districts, and in fact, it would provide a lot of incentives for them to do this. To uh, when they are selecting, you know, they're they're allocating their students, they could use buses again to try to mix up the demographic categories to get a good balance, and to right. So end- someone who is presumably less well off could use a public bus in order to go to a better school in, in an area that would would integrate those people of color with the richer white school, basically. Well, I don't think it's a, pu- well, public school bus, but I'm talking about, like, you know, the big yellow buses that, that are just for students, yeah. you know, that, that, right. that no, kind know. of thing. School. Right, right, okay. Yeah, 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 school bus. Yeah, yeah, but, but all I'm saying is that the ability to go to a school out of your area could be justified based on the fact that you are integrating right demographically by going that distance right and so you have a new basis upon which you could go to a school that before you couldn't choose to go to uh, based on this criteria that it would it would be integration yes and and um, yeah and in fact it would provide a big pot of money to incentivize that sort of thing be like oh if your school wants to get some integration in place because the sort of background reality here is that the federal government doesn't have all that much influence over how schools are working. You know, they're mostly locally controlled. But, you know, you could yeah. say you want to integrate your your school, you, you know, here's some grants and so on. But another thing he right. would do is uh, bring back uh, uh, court-ordered desegregation, which used to be a big thing and was mostly rolled back in the, in the, the 80s and 90s, where you'd have, you know, uh, schools with a rural history. I think they were largely in the South, though not entirely, where the the 
the courts would basically force them to, to integrate their the school district, you know, because there, there's a lot of districts, for example, that, um, you know, would have, you know, a, a big population of people and there would be like, you know, four white schools and then like two black schools and they the the almost all the black people went there especially the poor ones and those ones were just like really shitty um and the you know the purpose was just sort of like quarantine the black population in these schools and like starve them of resources and so on and uh yeah there are the a lot of these court ordered desegregation things are really successful because they would they would they would you know uh they could penalize the district to be like if you don't get to this you know, demographic target, we're going to fine you a hundred million dollars or something like that. And, and they, you know, step right. to it. They're, they're not going to. Yeah, exactly. And what the, yeah. um, yeah. One, one final thing here that there's a very interesting, uh, article in the, um, Tampa Bay times from back in like 2015, uh, in, in the, the, um, the five worst elementary schools uh, in in uh, Florida, and they were all in Pinellas County, which is affluent. I may be pronouncing that wrong. Um, and as recently as 2007, all five of them were average or better. And what happened was the the county got out from under a federal desegregation order and they just instantly resegregated the schools and they stuffed all the poor black people in the county into these five dog shit schools got less money and then they were all it was all concentrated poverty as well which is really bad for education and so you had like tons of turnover and you know like incompetent management a lot of violence in the schools and so on and their test scores just fell right through the floor and um you know, there's just all this uh, hullabaloo over this. Um, some pretty, you know, desperate stories from, uh, you know, lower middle class back, black families that are like doubling up to get out of these crappy schools. And um, I think it shows you two things here. That number one, the segregationist impulse is absolutely as alive and well today as it was in like 1960 and mm-hmm. you know the the in, in in they the theory behind getting out from under the desegregation order is like look we've been compliant we did it you know we're all good you don't need to look over us anymore and this the second you know they got out from under it it was like boom uh, we were lying sorry but um another uh, maybe more interesting part of this is that there was no corresponding increase in really high-performing white schools. There's, like, one that did, like, better a bit. But it's not as if, you know, segregating all the poor black people in these schools meant that all the white kids were getting a correspondingly better education. They all Not that that would be okay. Like, even if it were true, that would still not be a justification for it. But it's not even true. No, no. And so there's... There's literally no downside to this, you know, in terms of the educational achievement. And I would say, you know, you're living in a multi, multi-ethnic, multicultural society. It's arguably a benefit to go to an integrated school where you have lots of contact with other cultures. And you're not just like the Covington, Kentucky kids or you're, you're stuck in, you know, fucking mega, you know, 
dome of whiteness and privilege. And the second you go to DC and then black Israelites start, start yelling at you, then you uh, just yeah. panic and start being incredibly racist. Well, and, and so it's not only that it's good for any number of reasons to integrate for, for, you know, some of the um, rationales you just gave, but also it's a form of protection against people of color who, when concentrated, can be harmed with these broad stroke policies that don't care about these populations since they're all integrate or they're all kind of concentrated together. But if, if you integrate them with kind of the, the white privileged kids who are otherwise protected, then that serves as a form of protection for the people of color who've been integrated into those school systems, right? Because, because now you would be harming the white privileged kids and, and God knows that's not going to happen. Right. So, so, so that's another form of uh, kind of not just protection against harm, but way to ensure the kind of environment in which people of all, you know, colors and ethnicities can flourish. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the great the great benefit of of um, you know universal social insurance is that you harness the fate of the poor to the fate of the yes. middle class and the rich. And if everyone's getting yes. more or less the same services, then um, they're bound up together. Yeah, and I don't think you know this isn't a panacea for education. You know, poor black people, even in integrated schools, often don't do that well. But right. They do a lot better the, the, than they. The one I think it, it, this is still true. I believe that the one, the most statistically significant factor in your education leading to, your, like, basically, what can predict success in school from K through twelve to college and beyond is household income. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm yeah, mo- almost certainly true. The, uh, that's yeah, the case. Yeah, more more than the wealth of the particular school district, more than any of these other variables. That's the one. So yeah, of course that still has to be addressed. Um, but this is part and parcel of a broader right education policy that Bernie is offering. There, there's, um, you know, we, we want to talk about what he's saying with regard to charter schools a bit, or or his other uh, educational policies. Yeah, he he wants to ban for profit charter schools. And he supports the NAACP's moratorium on public funds for charter schools um, until they've done a national audit. Um, and it's not just, it's not like banning charters outright, but, you know, making them comply with uh, same oversight. Um, so let's see, mandating that at least half of all charter school boards uh, members are, are teachers and parents. Um, disclosing stuff, um, un- um, you know, allowing for uh, labor unions to to get into charters, and um, it's funny. John Chait wrote a piece accusing him of racism because charter schools are broadly popular in the in the black community, and um, right, some of them are can always can always rely on Chait. As usual, did not disclose the fact that his wife is a charter school lobbyist, but. You know, you 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 look at the data, and Chait constantly exaggerates the the efficacy of charter schools. You know, the if you if you look at the the data as uh, Rachel Cohen has done, some charter schools are better, 
some are a lot worse than public schools. I think on average, in terms of student achievement, really not that different. But they also have this anti-labor, anti-public uh, provision of, of social uh, goods ideology to them that I think is very toxic. And, Pernicious, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Why don't and the for-profit ones are especially not. Oh great. yeah, yeah. That that is totally unjustifiable. You know these these people make money by advertising. You know and like tricking people into coming to these scummy schools, and a lot of them are just like appallingly poorly managed. Um. The the uh, the third big thing. I, uh, he wants to try to even out the funding for public schools. You know, the way public schools are, f- are funded is just so grossly <laughs> unjust. Perverse. Lo- like local property tax revenue is just, it's like, yeah, the rich get all the resources and poor get nothing. And, you know, so he's he's got a, uh, a variety of mechanisms to try to, you know, again, you, these are locally controlled, so you can't just overturn it nationally, but trying to you know, legally mandate this and provide some money over here to try to top things up. Right. And so because of federalism, the best that, uh, you know, the, the president of the United States could do is to create incentives and, and uh, induce state and local governments to do what's right and adhere to a, a more equitable way of funding education. Yeah. Right? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that he could do. You know, there's a lot of, uh, um, little federal incentives and rules and stuff that you could change to try to spread that out, you know, to be, yeah. to have it like, I mean, people put, people might not realize the reason that we have a drinking age that's uniform across all States. Cause that's something that States should determine what, what the drinking age is. That's because of something exactly like that. The, uh, the kind of requirements that, uh, to get funding for the highways, uh, from the federal government, you have to have, you know, the the particular age limit before you can purchase alcohol. So it's exactly the kind of uh, bargain that the federal government sometimes has with states to, to, to mandate something that otherwise would be totally state and locally controlled. Yeah. But this, uh, you know, there, there's more to it. Uh, but I think, you know, we covered most of the big parts. Um, and... He also wants to boost up teacher pay a lot and expand after school and summer education stuff. Uh, right, like a floor, a floor for teacher pay. And, That'd be cool. Uh, universal school meals. Every Everybody gets the same school lunch. For you know? free. So, yep. so n- none of the stigma of free lunch, you know, free lunch kids getting the PB&J or whatever. From, right. Uh, oh. So, yeah, this is, I'd say, the ideas are good, but I think as a as a rhetorical strategy it's very pleasing to see him coming in to to bringing back desegregation as a as an important topic because it's still a huge fucking problem and um yes, yes. it's gotten worse since the 1970s you know when there are all these court orders and stuff um and 1980s uh so you know to see biden who is a big part of why schools are so segregated now, still standing by his record, working with James Eastland to to, to, yep. to beat back school integration. That's a pretty stark what a, contrast. <laughs> what, a, what a foil that Biden is for Bernie. I mean, he's also the bankruptcy reform guy in bed with the credit card companies. So, so almost every policy we're talking about, he is the exact opposite side of. Yeah, absolute stooge for Israel. You know, it just goes mm-hmm. on and on. 
voted for the Iraq War, financial deregulation, war on crime. Um, but yeah, I think that's good. We let's see. We move on. So, other big Bernie policy: Medicare for all. Obviously, like that's his signature thing. Um, is he more bold? It, it sounds weird because to say Medicare for all suggests the same thing, but you, you hear other candidates that hedge, uh, Elizabeth Warren seems close to his proposal, but then when you get to like, you know, uh, to, um, Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris, then it's a little less clear. And then you devolve to people who are like, no public option. Right. So, so can we clarify how different or distinct his proposal is from others? Well, most of the, uh, big, uh, you know, candidates have endorsed, Bernie's bill, most of the senators, I think Harris has, I think Warren has, Kristen Gillibrand has, but Bernie is clearly the only one who actually thinks it's a, it's, it's like a real priority for him. Harris has backed off, uh, in, in her rhetorical statements saying like, well, we don't want to move too fast. Warren's clearly not that into it either. Um, yeah, maybe this is worth parsing supporting someone else's bill and what that means in terms of an endorsement versus how we can measure actual principled support for something that is categorically different from some compromised policy. Yeah. Right? And yeah, under, you know, Medicare for all, you you uh obviously everyone's on Medicare, but Bernie would also change it so that it would cover if I'm not mistaken, you you cover all uh, primary care, um, you know, uh, inpatient, outpatient, nursing coverage, plus dental and vision and prescription drugs, and um, there what about would psychological? there would be no copays or deductibles or premiums, uh, no no. Uh, um, Costs except for prescription drugs, but those would be capped at two hundred and fifty dollars a year. So nice, you you know some small copays or certain things, but the 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 cap on it is very small. You know, like they, this would be really really good insurance, probably better than virtually anyone in in the entire country has today, and it would be accepted everywhere. And um, the private insurance industry would be forbidden from duplicating any of that coverage, and so they would go down to a vestigial thing with some like supportive you know a few supplemental policies here and there so right and it and you know what what there's a always what would it cost and it it de- it depends really on how aggressive you want to get with prices you know so currently the US spends about a trillion dollars more uh relative to the size of our economy than the second most expensive country in the world, which is Switzerland. And I came up with a sort of back of the envelope estimate to say that you could almost certainly squeeze out about $800 billion in just pure waste. And however much you wanted to uh, do that just depends on how bold you want to get. Um, And it, it, it's a problem because hospitals themselves don't even know where the real uh, what what their shit costs. There is a great right. uh, Wall Street Journal article about they they 
what it what the hospital trying to figure out what it actually cost them to do a knee surgery for which they charged fifty like fifty thousand dollars about, and their result was about ten thousand dollars. So <laughs> you need to do basically a massive audit of the entire like medical sector right. and do you know you could do global budgeting you could i you know other countries do pay for fee for service and it's actually fine but you just have to have a really hard ass bureaucracy to make sure that that uh uh you know you're getting a good deal for your money and the hospitals aren't ripping you off you know because the i think most hospitals you you'd have uh United States spends 8% of its health and it's it's medical money on on administration and we have the worst administrative uh system of any medical you know any other country by far i mean it's and it's gotten a lot worse under electronic medical records i don't know if you've noticed this but been a lot of studies on this about like losing documents losing paperwork referrals getting lost scans not being sent to me if you've had any contact with the medical system and you had to bounce back and forth between different providers it's just fucking dog shit and so canada spends three percent i'd be able to get that down get prescription drugs down um and uh yeah you know it'd probably required you know printing or some tax bump or whatever but i don't think it's remotely outside of our our capacity and and total even the coke funded um mercatus center guy charles blahouse found that it would cut total medical spending by two trillion dollars over 10 years right right so when you think of the cost the, the rhetoric on the on the right is to to talk about just how your taxes might go up without mentioning how your actual out of pocket costs for your insurance and your and your medical procedures goes to zero or or almost nothing and so they don't talk about the overall um, net gain that most people will have some rich people maybe overall will be more expensive but um you know most people will have much better service much better coverage lives will be saved and overall the economy is probably going to net gain from this change i would say right yeah i mean you think you know the the the, the discourse around cost is all about um you know the the taxes but I think the way to think about it is just how much of national income is being dedicated to the medical system. That's right. And are we getting a good right. value for our money? And the answer That's is right. no. We're spending like 17, last time I checked, like 17.3, I think, percent of GDP on uh, the, the health spending. And the Switzerland, yeah. as I said before, is second cheapest. They're at 12.3%. Other countries, you know, France is at I think like nine or ten percent. UK is at like seven, eight percent. Japan is at I think seven or eight percent. And all of them have better uh, outcomes than the U.S. in a lot of areas. Like we do pretty well on cancer survival rates, but on the other hand, like I think infant mortality. 40, rates yeah, forty-two percent of cancer patients lose their entire life savings within two years. I think I yeah. saw a study on this. Um, bankruptcy medical bankruptcies are outrageous we're not bad on heart attack survival but we are dog shit we're really terrible on infant mortality and maternal mortality 
and yep. life expectancy is declining, you know, so. All the more disproportionately uh, harming people of color. Yes. Women of color, and, especially. And poor people. Yeah, black women in particular just get absolutely right. screwed. Pregnant black women, you know, like you, you're, you're better off in Cuba by considerable margin. Um, so yeah, you know, just to, just to sum up, you know, it's like we're, we're dedicating this proportion of our economy for middling to shitty performance along every metric. Meanwhile, the, the burden of complexity it places on average citizens is absolutely psychotic. So that's the thing, right? So if you've read Corey Robbins great piece from years ago about socialism as converting uh something like converting horrible misery into ordinary unhappiness yeah. uh in part that was about reducing all that that terrible like the paradox of choice having so many choices quote unquote that actually just make you so anxious you don't know what to do you have too many 401ks if you're lucky to choose from you you're, you're just bombarded with paperwork and with decisions and you have to constantly gain knowledge unless you get screwed because you missed uh you know paying for something you didn't realize you had to pay for and then you you know you go bankrupt all of these things compound in, in capitalism right the the stress anxiety and, and uh, uh terrible kind of uh, form of life you have to experience that gets totally taken away, right? The opportunity cost of all that misery and, and time and energy is, is wiped clean, but also the forms of domination and oppression that look, most people get their insurance through their employer. This would get rid of that necessity. So you can no longer, as we talked about with Quay Robin, no longer feel like your boss can control when you go to the bathroom in part because your boss controls your medical, like your actual life because he can fire you at will and you lose your ability to get treated medically for that reason. So you feel like you have to just submit to the domination of your employer, like that form of freedom, not just economic, but, but that form of freedom, that emancipation, which we talked a bit about with, with Nancy Frazier in the last episode is on offer. So when we think of comparing somebody like, I don't know if it's mayor Peter, or Beto, who might say, I'm in favor of quote unquote universal health coverage, which is really code for some combination of a public option and private health insurance. Uh, they really don't give a shit about those forms of domination that would persist, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this would just be such a more logical and, and just the once, if you could actually do this and, and once people got the hang of it, it would be so great. People would love it. You know, it just yeah. it would be like, wait, no more paperwork. I just go to the doctor whenever, whenever I feel sick. Holy shit! Right, right. Um, yeah, maybe which would reduce costs also because the people get preventative checkups, right? And things would be caught earlier. Obviously, people possibly. talked about this quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And you just wouldn't have that stress. I mean, I remember I've. I fainted one time and, and, and collapsed in the bathroom and, um, and I woke up. You had to take an Uber, right? Yeah. Well, the, the, you know, um, it called nine one one. And my first thought when I came to was like, Oh, don't do that. Don't call nine one one. I don't want an ambulance bill. I'm, you know, it could be 2000 bucks. I'll walk to the hospital. Right. right. Um, what a sick, sick. Yeah the way that there's so much of that burden that so many people just carry around all the time. And if you could just pull that mm -hmm. off, they, you know, it'd just be like, 
oh, like you're walking with a backpack full of boulders around all the time. And just be like, oh, yeah. holy yeah. shit, this is great. <laughs> I mean, Judith, Judith Butler talks about precariousness and precarity, and she says that, like, technically, everyone has a precarious life in the sense that we're all mortal. We could all die at any moment, be hit by a bus, have a heart attack, what have you. But politically and economically, we can, we do, the system that we're in, that, that is the status quo, chooses to disproportionately force enhanced precarity on different populations of people. And these are the types of policies that, try to fight against that and remove that disproportionate precarity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, let's, you know, let's do a couple more of, of his more under notice policies here. Um, sure. There's, uh, he has a great big farm thing that he just put out that didn't get very much attention at all, but he wants to, he wants to re- restructure the farms, the whole farm, like, marketplace and and uh economy you know to to change how it works um so there's a a a lot of it so there's a big um a big bunch of antitrust stuff he wants to do so so you know bust up a lot of these big agribusiness you know uh there's just it's like a few Few companies own most of the pork packing industries. Four companies slaughter 85% of beef cattle. Soybean sales from the largest forest sellers rose from 51 to 76% between 2000 and 2015. Um, two largest conglomerates now control 78% of the corn seed market. So break up a bunch of them. And he wants to do a, a put a moratorium on vertical integration, you know, where you have one company like owning the, the, uh, the all points of the production process. Um, he wants to do right to repair for farm equipment. Uh, you know, this is, it's sort of like Apple where you, where they ban third party, uh, repair shops from working on their stuff. So, like, if you have a John Deere tractor and you want to fix it, you just have to take it back to John Deere, where they, you know, charge you a huge uh, margin to repair it. Um, skipping over a few things, fair trade deals. Uh, you know, make it so that uh, the domestic farm market is protected from uh you know unfair competition and also is fair on the other side of the equation where you're not just dumping dirt cheap soybeans onto the overseas market um right then he wants to do a bunch of price regulation which is maybe the most interesting thing so Mm -hmm. it's got a supply management program so that you you uh, have like a steady supply. You don't have, as what happens now, there's often like quick shortages or huge surpluses of, of grains and stuff that build up. He wants to put together a national grain and feed reserve, uh, you know, to deal with stuff like the massive flooding in the, in the Mississippi basin, uh, re reform the structure of agricultural subsidies so that things, more of it goes to smaller uh, farms. Um, then he wants a a parity system so that farmers can make like 
as much money as equivalent, uh, you know, similar workers in other sectors of the economy. This is a classic George McGovern thing. So, you know, you you have a sort of price when it set a price floor on certain markets so that uh, company the the growers are always making at least enough that they're that they uh, are paid roughly the same as you know industrial workers. So how would you characterize this approach? It's like the two Roosevelts, like Teddy Roosevelt and FDR, a little bit. It's it's because uh, I think it would be good, and we'll do this with Warren as well to try to couch all the policies together that we cover or that we, we, we see in terms of some overarching approach to change and to policy. Uh, so how, how would you, how does this fit into that? Do you think? I would say this is broadly speaking, sort of Brandeisian policy. It's kind of funny. He's kind of horning in on, on, uh, Elizabeth Warren's turf a little bit, but the idea is not to socialize the farm sector, though he does say he wants to incentivize uh cooperatives you know um rural electric cooperatives food co-ops uh credit unions um which are tend to 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 pay better and uh produce better uh quality food um but so instead of in instead of uh like you know uh we're going to nationalize monsanto or whatever he says, right. let's just totally restructure the entire farm marketplace so that the businesses are smaller and that the prices are regulated such that they don't go, you know, they don't produce socially disastrous effects. And this is, you know, it's a classic part of the New Deal was to head off, uh, you know, the, the situation where where farmers would see a price collapse of their their you know whatever they're growing and then they would grow more to compensate they plant more more of the the crop and then the price would just decline even more and these people were just caught chasing their own tail and so there's a lot of this stuff that still exists in the uh, usda that they do things called marketing orders which is sort of just like a, a a big agreement among you know, producers of stuff like raisins. One of these products, one of these things, was declared uh, unconstitutional by the by John Roberts a couple of years ago. But you know, the point being that you're you're um, coordinating production such that the price doesn't go too high, when it doesn't go too low, and it doesn't um, uh, ensure a steady supply, uh, but not too much. You know, so. It's like it controls the price. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, definitely a, <laughs> a certain form of price controls. You know, you're not dictating to people exactly what they can charge, but you could say, oh yeah, price, price floors right. and so on. And and um, you know, these programs are incredibly successful in the New Deal. It's kind of a pain in the ass, but farming is a weird business. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. you you plant in the spring and then you harvest later, and shit can go wrong and. You know, but on the other hand, like you need food. Everyone needs food, and I think this is a. It, it, go it, ahead. No, no, no. F- finish your thought. I was just going to say that this to to put on the horse race cap for a moment. This will probably play pretty well in Iowa. I would think. Yeah, Iowa's get a whole a whole farm belt's just getting totally fucked by Trump's trade war. You know, like we export a ton of soybeans to China, and they've been punishing 
you know, tr- specifically, I think they're specifically punishing Trump states, like picking out what's grown in in uh, Iowa and so on yeah. to try to maybe. Sw- yeah, but I'm not sure that it's had an effect on on the real strong Trump supporters that are farmers. Even oh no, they'll no, they're not the real strong ones. But I think it's definitely yeah, dented maybe. his. You know, his support's gone down by double digits in every one of these states. Um, right. There, there's, a, there'll always be that hardcore people who just, they just love him, you know. Was they're dying of measles and, uh, you know, starvation, or dying of whiteness, yeah. or as they're dying of whiteness, as as a, a great new book um, discusses, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's, it's the fucking Twinkie of politics, you know. There's just no nourishment to it. You're, you're, you're just these, these empty calories that are going to make you die of political rickets, you know. Nice. Trump is a fascist Twinkie. I like it. <laughs> um, uh, quickly, one one well, more. Um, yeah. well, and don't forget, I'm not sure which one you're going to pick, but don't forget, even if we don't get into it, mentioning how he's the only one, as far as I know, to stand up for felons to be able to vote, right? Yeah. I was, I was actually just going to move to that one real quick. Criminal justice reform. Yeah, so he wants to allow all ex-cons and all current prisoners to vote, which is very... That's a a laudable stance, because that is not popular. That is very unpopular. Um, But I think it's it's one of those things that, like, it hasn't even been discussed yet, and it's one that sounds weird to people, but the more you think about it, the more it's like, actually, that seems fine. Um, But he also wants to end the war on drugs, legalize pot... Um, and ban cash bail. All three of those are... Which, I, I don't know, that last one especially, constitutionally, again, we run into problems with who actually has control over such things. It, yeah, this would have to be some sort of incentive thing. I don't think you could ban it. But the yeah. current in, you know bail uh, rules are heavily influenced by the government, and they have a lot of leverage right. over that. And, you know, two-thirds of people in, in jails... You know, as opposed to prisons, you know, a place where you go before yeah, right. you have a trial or a guilty plea or whatever. Two thirds of those people have not been convicted of a crime, or well, actually, no, sixty percent. Uh, uh, and there's like like uh, seven hundred something thousand people in in jails, and most of those people who who are who have not who have not they've not been convicted rather that uh, are there because they can't pay their bail. And that's just a completely horrible... And then that's so often used to force or help pressure and induce a plea bargain, which accounts for, this might just be at the federal level, uh, I believe 97% of all convictions are plea bargained. There's only 3% go to trial. It might be the federal level, but um, just an outrageous form. Yeah. 90 plus percent, I I pretty sure at all levels at all levels yeah and they don't you know there's like there's so many prisoners like this system has been so hollowed out and the the uh number of people being incarcerated on a daily basis is that they can't possibly do that many trials and so there's just this enormous pressure to just stack up the charges coerce a guilty plea move on to the next person 
Well, and, and who's in prison has very little to do with, with, you know, um, who is quote unquote guilty of anything. We've talked about Foucault before we've talked about mass, mass incarceration before, but this is a form of uh, criminalization, the way that the laws interact with the prison system, both the for-profit prison industry and just the regular way that, 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 uh, criminal law and policing works is to just, uh, punish, abuse, and harm disproportionately those populations uh, of, of poor and color who do not have the, the power to fight against it or to pay to get out of bail or to get a good lawyer, right? It's just an incredible injustice system uh, where there is almost nothing going on except state-sanctioned abuse and harm. Yeah, yeah. And this, you know... The legalizing pot sounds like a total gimme, but that's still a big thing in a lot of the country. It's like counties mm-hmm. in Georgia where half the arrests are pot possession. And most of them don't go anywhere, but but it's it's still, it's just like, Jesus, you know, get the state out of people's lives in this. It's just a... Well, it's a form of social control. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's just... Way for police to just be able to hassle anybody they want. Um. I think, uh, let me see here, maybe two more quick ones. Uh, Wants to do a massive bailout of of Puerto Rico. So huge uh, reconstruction package to to clean up the mess after the hurricanes from 2017, which has not been remotely fixed. Um, And he also wants to get rid of uh, the PROMESA dictatorship which is this it's this thing that president obama signed in 2016 which uh placed basically the government of puerto rico is a bunch of unelected technocrats and there's a one guy from like the heritage foundation and a bunch of other bankers and they're just bleeding the place dry you know so he would restore the sovereignty that it had at least before this thing and do a big debt write down and reconstruction package to get, uh, you know, get basically get, uh, uh, Puerto Rico back on a, a sound economic footing so that it can stop hemorrhaging right. population and, you know, return to health. Um, I think the theme you see with all this is, and I know you have another one that you want to mention, but don't you think the theme is, there are state and market based forms of domination, oppression, and harm, which of course work together. They're conceptually distinct, but they operate together. Right. Um, and these policies attack different forms of oppression. And so are emancipatory, uh, whether the liberation or emancipation is coming from state violence and harm or from, you know, the, the quote unquote self-regulating market and the harms that come from that. Um, they all seem to, to, to be aimed at some type of emancipation against those two forms or sources of oppression. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One thing he doesn't mention on his, on his, uh, on his, uh, Puerto Rico policy page is statehood. Which he should. DC and Puerto Rico, right? Should be. Yeah. And he, he does, I think he does, he does support statehood in theory, but it's not like, it is just like the got to vote for it but i i would almost certain that if it were to come up for a vote he would you know he would uh, support that 
Right. Um, and and that, that's a little complicated because there is the self-determination aspect. Like does Puerto Rico want to become a state? And if, if, uh, if at present, you know, the people don't, is it paternalistic to try to kind of move them in that direction? Um, this, you know, redounds back to the same Vanguard problem we've talked about before though. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, they've had a couple of referendum referenda in which the statehood did win. Um, and I think it's pretty clear to me that that's really the only realistic option for it because, right. um, their current status sucks. And, but if they are an independent country, then, you know, you're, you're, you, you're stuck with this ruined infrastructure, no money from uh, the the United States government anymore, and then you're probably mostly defenseless from vulture capitalist predation. Um, right. And if they if they were to become a state, you know, then you can you know you can you 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 could be at least in theory something like you know any other state and. I, more importantly, you would have people in Congress who could go and raise hell, you know, and they could gum up the wheels of government and and uh, and until their needs are met, and you know, get the get the the bailout and the reconstruction that they so clearly deserve for this and you know, fifty hundred years previously of colonial imperialism. So, but I guess at the end of the day, it is up to them. It's up to them. It would be nice in the Senate to have D.C. and Puerto Rico uh, to have, uh, you know, another another four senators on the, on the side of uh, the left, uh, possibly, uh, to kind of prevent the tremendous obstacle that the Senate is to getting any legislation passed oh, in Congress. God. Um, but yeah, final thoughts on, on all these policies or Bernie? Could maybe just talk to get, uh, um, take us out here is talk about his climate policy. And this is a place where I think there's going to be what what he has now is a pretty thin um, little just bunch of bullet points, and so that it's it's like I don't know it's just a couple of paragraphs. Whereas the 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 farm thing is like several pages long. The uh, the the um, usury thing we'll is link to this. long, yeah. This one, you know, he, he's saying all the right things. Pass a Green New Deal, invest in infrastructure, reduce carbon mm-hmm. f- uh, emissions from our transportation system, ban fracking, and keep, uh, you know, keep uh, keep it in the ground by by banning fossil fuel leases on public lands, end export of of uh, coal, natural gas, and crude oil. So that's a pretty those are some pretty radical measures, but. In terms of a whole worked out approach, you know, the Green New Deal thing is just like two sentences. What does that look like? Right. Um, right. And uh, Jay Inslee has a pro, uh, pretty worked out climate change thing. You know, that's his signature issue. And so I would expect Bernie mm-hmm, in the next mm-hmm. week or two to come out with something that is real aggressive. And yeah, that's the other thing I was going to say. What? So this is one example. But what else should uh, Bernie and his campaign fill in the details of or propose that they aren't or, or what are, what are some of the flaws that they need to work on? I, I guess that's one uh, that you pointed to draw on the, the, the more extensive, expansive um, fleshed out policy of Jay Inslee. Um, I, I think, you know, maybe Elizabeth Warren's 
Um, I mean, there's a mention in Bernie's policies about student debt and, and reducing it by some significant amount, but it's not nearly as bold or fleshed out as Elizabeth Warren's, for example. Well, he does support free college. Um, right. So mm-hmm. that would mm-hmm. deal with it going forward. He doesn't have a, a debt forgiveness thing. I get the least I would expect him to support reforming bankruptcy so that people with lots of student debt could just get rid of it. Could discharge it. Yeah. yeah. Um, his... Uh, ex- Expand Social Security page is very short. <laughs> it's one bullet point. Uh, you know, expand and extend Social Security for the next 52 years by making sure that all income over $250,000 a year is so- subject to the Social Security payroll tax, the mm-hmm. Social Security Expansion Act. Now, and I suppose that at? would be in the, the details would be in there, but it would be nice to see that in the, you know, how much are we expanding it and uh, how much yeah, money well, is that going to so, raise? But- Here's the other thing, because we've talked about this before. Uh, on the one hand, you want more details to flesh out exactly how things work and the specifics, and you want to make sure it's not just a bunch of hot air and promises. On the other hand, a lot of lefty ideals and utopian demands have been crushed by people who at the very inception, before there's any political will generated by promoting these ideas, uh, you know, the, uh, just the Iglesias of the world or the, or the kind of uh, the wonks want to demand all the details right now resolve perfectly before we can even permit discussion of a policy as a, as a proposal. Right. So that, that's the other harm, right? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's uh, no sense in like, you know, pissing about too much to write bills that will never pass or, you know, that, that you could write later. But um, the... I think you want to hit a basically sort of happy medium, you know, where like it's pretty yeah. clear what you want yeah. to do. You don't have to dot every I and cross every T, but yeah. um, you also don't want it to just be like super vague at the same time. Yeah. And as we talked about with Robert Hockett about the Green New Deal, a lot of details uh, should p- perhaps be determined collectively and democratically at, at kind of national and state and local levels. And to do it top down is is kind of... Uh, inimical to the way that it should be figured out and certain principles should be espoused. Uh, and, and I put, pressed him on it and he thought like the job guarantee might be something that is both pragmatic, but in principle is something the left should push for. So there are some things that, that are both a means to an end, but also ends in themselves. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, but overall do you think Bernie has, has struck that balance in, in not, uh, not erring on, on either side too much? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> If uh, I think, in the most part, yeah, he's pretty pretty close. The one thing I one thing I would like to see thinking about it again is like a bunch of day one stuff. You know, it's like you're inaugurated. What do you uh, what executive orders mm-hmm. are going to issue on day one? Yeah, um, or first hundred days. What do you want to yeah. get done the first hundred days? And yeah. and what would he like? He has a little thing about uh, you know getting money out of politics. Um, restore the Voter Rights Act, automatic voter registration, get rid of Citizens United, voter IDs, um, make Election Day a national Which again, holiday. He can't really get rid of Citizens United himself, obviously. No, but but to to, to support the ways in which that might come about, I try try to do it. Yeah, and um, but uh. Yeah, what are the priorities? How yeah. else would he restructure? I mean, in particular, you know, I would say like like um, thinking about this from a frame of 
how do you empower the left and above That's you right. know dc and puerto rico statehood is mm-hmm. is could be high up there that's you know it's like the probably the only way that the democrats are ever going to be able to hold on to the senate for any length of time um right because they're Makes sense they're to me. like a minus six handicap right now or something like that given just the way that yep. the partisan balance of states happens to sit um, yeah makes a lot of sense to me yeah so i would like to see you know see more discussion about that you know the the sort of the strategy of building power structurally but yeah. it's pretty good i imagine he would say medicare for all would probably be high up on the priority list as my guess yeah boy imagine passing that through this senate <laughs> But well, that's exciting. Overall, but yeah, pretty good overall. Yeah, I mean, it's rich. You know, there, there's a there's a ton of stuff in there, and even if it's incomplete, I almost you know every single idea is pretty worthy. Um, very principled. Very, you know, not not uh, like you said. I don't know if it was the last episode or, or this episode about Biden. Um, he's not negotiating with himself. He's yeah. going bold and principled. Yeah. Yeah, you you know, negotiations 101. This is the art of the deal, baby. You make a, you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> know, you, you when you go to buy the rug at the flea market, you you lowball them. That's why or, you know, conversely you're selling yeah. the rug, you highball them. You want to see what the see what you can get. See how much you can That's swindle right. out of these dumb tourists, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the dumb tourists being the Republicans. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and the neoliberal Democrats. Yeah. And that, you you know, it's a vision of a kind of confidence that, uh, did we talk about the New York Times interview? No, we should get to it. Let's let's, uh, wrap it up with that, which is a beautiful. This just wonderful interview where the the New York Times woman, Sydney Ember, was trying to, trying to get him to apologize for an anti-war rally uh, opposing, um, Reagan's funding of the Contra death squads in Nicaragua in the 1980s. <laughs> Apparently, somebody at that has uh, the, somebody was saying here, there, everywhere, the Yankee will die, and Sanders just brushes her off. The, the says, um, "Yeah, my point I was mean, that it's... she asked. My point is, if I uh, was, I wanted to know if you had heard that." And he says, I don't remember, no. Of course there was anti-American sentiment there. This was a war being funded by the United States against the people of Nicaragua. People were being killed in that war. Then she asked, do you think if you had heard that directly, you would have stayed at the rally? And he says, I think, Sydney, with all due respect, you don't understand a word that I'm saying. No, what, what's but what but what's true is that the New York Times, at least this reporter, but so many of the quote progressive neoliberals, are concerned with civility and literally are more concerned with quote unquote anti-American rhetoric or language as opposed to the actual war crimes committed by the United States. Yeah, that the protest is about. Yeah, I mean, if that doesn't just typify. This, you know, as you say, limp dishrag, milquetoast liberalism. I don't know what does. And finally, somebody on the left is like, hello, (laughs) Bueller. (laughs) You know, the Sandinistas, that was the right side to be on. Yeah. You know, the side against the the Contras who were killing nuns and children and, and just 
being funded by the U.S. government? Yeah. And that confidence, you know, and that's a lesson right. Trump can teach. I mean, that you you can bluster through just about anything, but especially here, where he's absolutely in the right and is just like, you know, f- fuck, fuck you. <laughs> you know, like, what kind of a stupid <laughs> question is this? You didn't say that well, exactly, yeah. but in, in those words, but but that was the implication. Yeah. Like, so that's and the questions we ask matter, right? The questions we ask matter, and that that question gave so much away. And I'm glad that the answer isn't some concession to the question. Um, so that and the foreign policy that flows from that is maybe one of the things as we talk about Warren, maybe, um, in a future episode that might distinguish him from all the other candidates. We think he and Elizabeth Warren are a category apart from everyone else, but between the two of them, it might be foreign policy and the way that he sees capitalism and imperialism operating together as part and parcel of the same global project, uh, that might distinguish him from, from Warren actually. Yeah, I think so. She's much more of a squish. She's gotten better, but she's clearly not. She was clearly not demonstrating in favor of the Sandinistas in the 1980s. I I will lay right. good money on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, everybody. That was that was a, a good uh, good talk, my friend. I think I think we should do this as as much as the candidates actually have enough to to dig into. We should do this for others. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good good idea. But thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.